Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. I'm David Burton, Senior Fellow in Economic Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. Our subject today is, is it humane to be a socialist? A highly relevant subject it is. Today's event is the fifth in a speaker series we call Free Markets, the Ethical Economic Choice. It provides a moral and ethical critique of socialism and makes the case for the moral superiority of a free economy. I want to bring to your attention the next two events in this series. On November 15th, George Gilder of the Discovery Institute will give a talk called Capitalism is an Information and Learning System. And on November 30th, Mike Munger of Duke University will give a talk, If Poverty is the Real Problem, Then Capitalism is the Only Solution. I would also like to bring to your attention an event that's not part of this series but may be of interest to you. On November 16th, Greg, Gregory May will be here to talk about his new book, Jefferson's Treasure, How Albert Gallatin Saved the New Nation from Debt. Now, Gallatin, I think, is a seriously underestimated figure. He cut taxes, reduced the national debt by half, reformed government finances. He was sort of a one-man OMB and funded both the Louisiana Purchase and the War of 1812. He was both Jefferson's and Madison's Secretary of the Treasury, and their answer to Alexander Hamilton. And it's his statue that stands at the front of the Treasury Building. On to today's event. It is my pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Deirdre McCluskey. She is among the most erudite defenders of classical liberalism and a free economy in the United States today. Since the year 2000, Dr. McCluskey has been the Distinguished Professor of Economics, History, English, and Communications at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Trained at Harvard, which we won't hold against her, as an economist. She's written 16 books and edited seven more and published some 360 articles on economic theory, economic history, philosophy, rhetoric, feminism, ethics, and the law. Dr. McCluskey had the challenging task of teaching me price theory while a professor of economics at the University of Chicago. That was my good fortune. Uh, she was also a professor of economics and history at the University of Iowa. Dr. McCluskey's many books are unusually well written, particularly when it comes to economics, uh, which, as she's written, isn't always a, a, a discipline that has the very finest writing. Although lawyers do pretty bad, too. <clears throat> um, anyway, spending time with these books is always both deeply edifying and a genuine pleasure. And I want to bring a few to your attention. First, the Bourgeois Era Trilogy, three books written over a period of about 10 years. 
The most recent is Bourgeois Equality, How Ideas, Not Capital or Institutions, Enrich the World. Uh, then Bourgeois Dignity, Why Economics Can't Explain the Modern World. And the first, Bourgeois Virtues, Ethics for an Age of Commerce, written in 2006. Now, these books argue that new ideas are the explanation for the great enrichment from 1800 to the present. Liberty and dignity for ordinary people, classical liberalism, led to an explosion of what she calls trade-tested betterment. She argues that materialist explanations such as capital accumulation or exploitation are mistaken. In a modern restatement of ideas explored originally by Adam Smith in his theory of moral sentiment, she also makes the case that a virtue ethics, celebrating bourgeois or middle-class virtues, is sound and central to our society's success. Other books that you might find of value... The Cult of Statistical Significance, How the Standard Era Costs Us Jobs, Justice, and Lives, written with Stephen Zillick. The Rhetoric of Economics, Knowledge and Persuasion in Economics. If You're So Smart, The Narrative of Economic Expertise, Second Thoughts, Myths and Morals of U.S. Economic History. And last but not least, The Applied Theory of Price. We used The Applied Theory of Price in Mimeo form while I was at Chicago. It's now available online for free at www.deirdremccluskey.com for those who would like a good price theory book. And if you haven't read a price theory book, you should. The core analytical power of economics, in my judgment, is price theory. Now, after her presentation, we'll have time for audience Q&A and a copy of her remarks, or at least an outline, perhaps is a better term, will be available to anyone who wants it after the event. Please join me in welcoming Deirdre McCluskey. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I have a speech defect, which you'll have to grow accustomed to or run screaming from the room. It's still a free country, even after yesterday's election. <laughs> I had to make a joke about the election at this institute. Um, that price theory b- b- book that you speak of, I intend to do a third edition of okay. uh, when I get the time from the other things I want to do. And and among the things I want to do, and is the one of the core ideas in the, tr- the, the, the trilogy that David mentioned is to undermine the attractions of socialism. Now, socialism is attractive. The, t- the title of my talk is Socialism is Ethical at Age 16, Not at 26 or My Own Age. Um, um, 76. And when I was 16, as the child of a Harvard prof- uh, professor, therefore upper middle class uh, by birth, I was, I was a socialist, so to speak, somewhat unscholarly one. It was the age of, uh, of uh, folk music, so I was a Joan, I call myself a Joan Baez socialist. <laughs> I dreamt I saw Joe Hill. <clears throat> the old joke is that someone who's not a socialist by age 16 has no heart, 
someone who's still a socialist at age 26 has no brain. Now, at age 16, with the background that I had, socialism looked, and you could say was, ethically defensible. If you grow up in a family, and I take it everyone here did, you grow up in a socialist enterprise. The mom in the old traditional family, which is thankfully slowly declining, um, was the central planner and indeed had her own little uh, um, homework uh, 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 factory. My grandmother could make all the girls' clothing, could cook for 40 hours a week, everything from scratch. So there was economic production in the home that she did. And then her husband went off to be an electrician and then an electrical contractor. And the people in such a house, and certainly in mine, where my father would go off to the office and do God knows what, um, uh, and then come home and uh, income would fall like, like manna on the household. That background makes for socialists. I mean, it's still more for people like me who haven't done honest work in her entire life. Um, I've been in academic life. I was good at school, so I stayed. Uh, and if you uh, go to college and, and live in a dorm, as I did, and then go to graduate school and live in a dorm, as I did, and then get married, and then you have a, a central planner to take care of you, um, and then you, and then you, and then you, if it, particularly if your field is uh, English or, or history, as mine sometimes is, you're going to emerge at age, I don't know, 27 or something, as someone who's always lived in families. And you're going to view the market as this very strange foreign intrusion on the idyllic scene of from each according to her ability to each according to her need. Now, of course, if you grow up on a farm, as very, very few Americans do now, 1,800, over 80% of Americans were on farms. Now it's about 1%. Then you know where meat comes from. And you know, as we say, the value of money. You you know know that your parents worry about the the price of hogs or soybeans. So, Or if you grow up, as some of you surely did, over the shop, so to speak, uh, a, a small, a small business on the ground floor, an apartment upstairs where the family lived, and you worked as a child in the family, or if when you were a child you had a paper route or something like that. Uh, there's variation, it turns out, in the in the organization of. Uh, 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 paper routes I learned the other day and some of them are more entrepreneurial than others depends on the size of the newspaper uh, so it's it's no wonder 
considering that those occupations, those families are declining in weight in the American economy, most particularly agriculture, it's quite, quite enormous, that socialism survives in people's minds, young people's minds especially. I mean, David and I were speaking earlier about how strange it is that on TV you see these kids being um, interviewed and and they say earnestly, and they're not bad people, they're just saying earnestly, uh, I think we ought to try socialism, as though socialism hasn't ever been tried. Let's change the system, people are always saying, uh, um, which is... Uh, my own experience with changing the system is that it doesn't work. Uh, one version of the golden rule is those who have the gold rule under whichever uh, whatever system we have. Now it seems to me, I, I wonder if you, you agree, that one's political <coughs> convictions tend to freeze Sometime in one's 20s. Uh, and most people acquire their politics in their early 20s and then don't ever change. Um, so, so Bellow remarked once that as a youthful adolescent Trotskyist, he was more scholarly than, than I was about my Trotskyism, he found it very hard to shift as he gradually did to be some sort of uh, uh, conservative. Now, so far as the ethical questions concerned that we're we're dealing with here, of course, the age of reason in the age of reason in each of us, each of our lives, we're supposed to use uh, reason, and it's decidedly unethical not to in thinking about the politics that we're going to impose on our our neighbors. And it's striking in my experience, being once a socialist, now a free market advocate. I, I, I call myself a humane libertarian or a bleeding heart libertarian or a Christian liberal. It's striking that my socialist friends, of whom I have a great many, resist reason. Resist the reasonable claims that this this, this book that David plans to come out of these speeches have the, the claims of reason against socialism. There, there are the, the claims of sheer experience, that would be historical reasoning. The people who advocate socialism now, um, I'm, I'm, I'm fond of saying that, that Ber, Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, both of whom are about my age, we shared the same views in 1960, but they didn't change since then. You hear speeches by um, by um, Bernie Sanders, and they sound like 
1960s socialist um, uh, um, speeches. And it's striking that they haven't learned from history at all. And Jeremy Corbyn, and my, my friend, the economist Joe Stiglitz, praised Chavez and now Maduro in Venezuela. In the coverage of the Venezuelan catastrophe, it's quite notable that the journalists, again, I'm sure innocently, this isn't a conspiracy, they're not bad in that that simple-minded sense, cover it as though it were a natural disaster, as though a hurricane had hit uh, Venezuela, and for some reason you couldn't get any food or or, 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 or medicine at the store, and and for some reason you had to take uh, wheelbarrows full of money to buy bread. If these socialist friends of mine are Marxists, and most of them are, in fact, most of us in a way since the 1890s have been at least Marxoid. I've noticed resistance to my three wonderful books, which are available on Amazon.com cheap and even in spoken books, so what are you waiting for, um, are, 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 have a Marxoid theory of history, which is that the history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggles. When I read that in the Communist Manifesto as a kid, I thought, great, now I don't need to read anything more because now I have the formula somewhat like the formula in economics of marginal cost equal marginal marginal benefit. But if there, but, but so, so we're all in a sense for about a hundred years, we've all been uninterested or not, that isn't the word. We're, we're unpersuaded by the force of ideas, the independent force of ideas. And what's strange about this fact of intellectual uh, history, especially in the West, is that the people saying it, saying, oh, ideas don't matter, all that matters is interest. My former colleague, George uh, 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 Stigler at the University of Chicago is among this, and uh, Murray Rothbard, another acquaintance of mine, and I, I called them both America's leading vulgar Marxists because they talk this way all the time, that it's interest that determines ideas when they themselves were purveyors of ideas. They themselves were making speeches just like the one I'm making now. So there's something strangely <clears throat> inconsistent about this, this materialist um, preposition. But my Marxist friends, to get back to that sentence, are, are see, they, they walk by the evidence the, the evidence of reason, the historical evidence, the economic evidence. I think one reason for this is that the progressives, to cover them all, assume that people like most of the people in this room are evil. Look to your left, look to your right, there is an evil person there. Um, which means that you don't need to pay attention to what they say. Why pay attention to Hitler? Come on. An extreme case of this is the egregious Professor Nancy 
McLean of Duke University. He's written an astoundingly ignorant book about James Buchanan, a great, great liberal economist, attaching him for no good reason. No, she didn't interview anyone to do this. She just wants to do it with uh, uh, Calhoun's theories of racism. Um, or a Charles Koch, for whom I have worked. So I'm, I'm the enemy. She has a rule, actually, which she articulated this year, which is that Nancy will not, she's a historian, she's in the history department, Nancy will not speak to anyone who's accepted Koch money. And indeed, she won't speak to anyone from any university which has accepted money from Charles Koch. Now, the problem with this is that Duke University has accepted considerable <laughs> amounts of money from Charles Koch, so Nancy can't speak to herself, which, which perhaps explains why her book is so shockingly bad. <laughs> we... We libertarians and conservatives, by contrast, I speak at least for the libertarians, such as Don Boudreaux, George Mason, or Tom Palmer across town at Cato, or for that matter, for Charles Koch, assume that the progressives who say socialism, yeah, we ought to try that, are just misinformed. And that if we we teach them that uh, the tariffs are, idiotic, as they certainly are, or that or that stopping people from starting starting businesses is a bad idea, they'll say, oh, yeah, you're right. I, didn't, oh, I hadn't thought of that. You're right. Um, surely, but they don't. Now, what's the evidence against socialism that people at the age of reason should be listening to, but don't. After they've put away their natural and childish emotional toys of socialism. But By the way, that hypothesis of mine, that argument I made a few minutes ago about the family you're raised in, is a highly, highly testable proposition. It's a piece of uh, <clears throat> sociology that I wish some sociologists would uh, find out about. I've argued in the in the trilogy that David mentioned that the that the rise of income per head in the countries that have adopted a what you can properly call historically liberalism free markets and free minds has since 1800 increased, and I hear this, by 3,000%. That's income per head. And indeed, it can be income of the poorest. As you know, there's a lot of anxiety these days about inequality. It's become part of the Kant, the Kant, not the Kant, not Immanuel Kant, but the Kant on TV. Um, but in fact, it was the poor who benefited the most from this gigantic increase in income. If you ask people, even quite well-informed people, even employees of the World Bank sometimes, as the great Hans Rosling, 
R-O-S-L-I-N-G, Hans Rosling. You really must go find his videos. He would ask people, how much do you think income has increased since 1800 in Finland or Japan or the United States? And even well-informed people would say, well, you know, I don't know, 100% maybe. Maybe maybe 200%. But you know, it's all gone to the rich. The poor people haven't benefited. Even though the poor people went for, in 1800 from having nada <laughs> to having large apartments, air conditioning, refrigerators, which most Americans didn't have. And as, as recently as... Uh, uh, certainly 100 years ago, they had ice boxes if they were well-to-do. Um, automobiles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, excellent health care by the comparisons of 1900 when going to the doctor was very dangerous. Uh, so they, they think, oh, it's 100% or 200%. No, it's not. It's a factor of 30. <laughs> I have the embarrassing task of a speech I gave on this more or less the same subject about two weeks ago in Cambridge, England, to an audience of, uh, of old people, anthropologists, um, of explaining to a very eminent anthropologist, uh, I won't give his name, it's embarrassing, um, uh, who, who stood up afterwards and said, you know, I, I, I agree with your, your claim that it's a factor of 30 since since these olden days. He's a very eminent historical anthropologist. But you know, this 3,000% is wrong. And I didn't say, oh, professor, <laughs> 30 minus 1 divided by 1 is 29, multiplied by 100 to get a percentage, and you've got 2,900, which is roughly 3,000. I, I couldn't do it. I said, oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Oh, yeah, good point. Um, but... But, but that fact is extremely important to acquire, as John Dewey used to say, on your pulse. You should really get this into your head and your heart and grasp that free, market, free markets have increased income per head by 3,000%. And bid fair to do it for the entire world. There's no racial or cultural reason why sub-Saharan Africa can't be as rich as the United States. Um, and and, and as, as indeed the cases of China and India show very plainly. When I was young, when I was a, a student, young beginning student of economics, I was told by my teachers, my distinguished teachers at Harvard, uh, that things were hopeless in China because, you know, they're all Confucians. What, what can you do with a Confucian? And in India, the problem is they're all Hindus or maybe M Muslims, which is maybe worse. It's hopeless. They have ca a caste system. And, and they're just, India and China aren't ever going to grow. And then in 1978, at least in the economy, the Chinese government started to introduce liberalism. And in India, thank God, in 1991, the world's largest democracy, they started to do the same thing. And since then, rates of growth have been from 5 to 10% per year per capita. Whereas under Mao, they were essentially 0% per capita. 
under the what the Indians called the the the, the license Raj under um, Nehru and the Gandhis was one percent in a good year two percent five percent per year five or six percent per year solves a lot of social problems and is since 1991 in India. Now, the, the argument from our progressive friends, and I keep saying I use that phrase not in contempt, but because I do have progressive friends, and I do talk to them, and I do, I do love them. They say, oh, no, it was caused by the government, this rise since 1800. And it wearies me, but I then go through the arguments why it's not wasn't caused by the government. For example, I have a very distinguished colleague in the history department at the University of Illinois Chicago, who's a, a man of the left, and a, um, he's a labor historian. And I once said to him casually that the eight-hour day wasn't caused by laws, wasn't caused by struggles on, on the picket line or at, at the voting booth. It was caused, and he was startled by this assertion and didn't believe it contemptuous of the very idea. Of course it was laws. It says so right in the law. No one should work more than eight hours a day. I mean, what, what more do you need? You, you conservatives, he called me. But, of course, it's not true. We have an eight-hour-a-day law, not law, custom in the United States, because people don't want to work more than eight hours a day. And indeed, for a long time, the standard work week froze. It went down from 12 to 10 to 8 um, by, by, by custom and by law. Uh, but it seemed to have frozen. But it actually continued going down because people live longer on retirement. They go to school longer. The amount of time people spend not working, I myself am retired, though I retired in order to work, um, is is not because of laws, but because of the immensely increased productivity of the economy. Indeed, the 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 effective welfare state, which takes quite a while to emerge, is of course partly because of the spread of of, uh, of the right to vote, but it's also, and that's the legal source, but it's also because. As our economies get more rich, we feel we can, to use a non-economic word, afford a welfare state. And indeed, more generally, wages are not determined by bargaining. There's a kind of theory on the left which I see evinced in lots of news stories and, and speeches by politicians that the bosses have piles of gold in the back room and that the job of us progressives is to extract the gold and give it to the workers. And they believe this, especially firmly in France, where you know one labor law after another is imposed on French, the French economy. On the, on the idea that the only way the workers are going to get better off is by going after that gold. And it's not true. Wages 
are determined as economists have understood since the late 19th century by supply and demand for for workers and and the amount of evidence for that is just is you using the word overwhelming doesn't express it strongly enough it's gigantic um now why did this happen if we're going to convince our socialist friends that socialism is not the way forward we've got to convince them that capitalism is but one of the troubles is that the word capitalism embodies a scientific error it's a very very foolish word unfortunately it's been dominant in economics not since marx marx did never use exactly capitalism although he used uh, capitalist freely but since um, since the late 19th century but it suggests very strongly to both the left and the liberals and the conservatives that that the modern history of the economy is about the accumulation of capital and i have many other friends not on on the left who still believe this it's but though capital is necessary as is the rule of law and private um uh property for this factor of 30 this 3000% it's not the spring of the watch think of that metaphor here the spring the springs i have to say to make it grammatical are ideas ideas the capital and the rule of law and peace and whatever are the gears or even the clock face that shows the result of the spring and the gears and is not itself in any sense causal and i think we need to ponder this 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 metaphor because i think it's apt and i think it focuses on what's important what's important is a society in which ideas can flourish as the austrian economist i'm something of an austrian economist i've been everything i've been an austrian i've been a socialist i've been a chicago school economist i've been a social engineer i've been a man i've been everything um um as the austrian economists say these are the discoveries that the alert entrepreneur notices as she walks around um they are as israel kersner says the mass of free lunches that made up the 3000% the idea of electric lights the idea of cameras in the old days that camera would have to be much larger than it is the idea of projectors the idea of of nice wood that's maybe it's not solid i don't know but uh that depends on the bandsaw the idea the carpeting this cheap i mean uh, inexpensive carpeting um very attractive carpeting in the room the steel that makes up the um the chairs those are all ideas and indeed the idea of a think tank which this this building embodies 
is itself an idea. Uh, um, my, my absolutely favorite example is Malcolm McLean, no relation, I take it, to Nancy, um, who invented in 1956 containerization. You have standardized steel boxes. You've, you've seen hundreds of them. Either twenty feet long or forty feet long, that can be stacked on top of each other and put onto ships, in the number now of ten thousand forty-foot containers per ship, at the highest level, ten thousand forty-foot containers. That's that's a lot of hundred-car trains. Um, and which radically reduce the cost of ocean uh, transport for non-bulk goods. Of course, at the same time, bulk carriers, oil tankers in particular, got larger and larger and larger. No science was involved. Containerization is an organizational idea, like think tanks or the modern university invented in, in Berlin in 1810 combining research and teaching. Um, uh, these are, these, so the, the, the ideas are not necessarily mechanical or electronic or, or whatever, but they get tested in commerce. I keep altering that, that phrase that David mentioned once. I call it trade-tested betterment. Now I'm calling, calling, calling it simply commercially-tested betterment. That's the test. The test is, does the container make money? And of course, the left views, and the socialists view the money, the profit, as just kind of a tax. Um, uh, so, Robert, is that his name? So, who was Robert Sowell, Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell has a brilliant passage in his wonderful elementary book on economics where he says, well, okay, suppose profit is just a tax. It's a tax necessary, he says, and we, even our socialist friends would agree, to call out the enterprise that makes for containerization or, or, um, the steam engine or whatever. And and it's about what? 15% of national income? Maybe 20? Okay, it's about that, on that order. Whereas, let's consider socialism. <laughs> the tax in socialism, let's compare East and West Germany. Take a more extreme case, South and North Korea is 50% or more. Okay, class, which system do you want? The one with a 15 or 20% tax or one with a 50 or 90% tax? So this commercially tested betterment made us rich and reasonably good. It didn't corrupt our souls. 
That's a claim that's been common in all cultures since the beginning. Since the beginning of, not, of, of specialization, there have been towns, that is, there have been middlemen, and the middlemen are always bad. Uh, bankers, for example. Bad, 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 says everyone else while buying from them, <laughs> while taking loans from them. But I, I, in my the first book of that trilogy, I argued at some length, 500 pages, if you want to know, against this idea that commercially tested betterment is just essentially corrupting. Because as a Christian, this is an issue, an important issue for me. Um, well, what does it matter if someone gets the earth but loses her immortal soul? And I really believe that. If I thought that I actually started to call it innovism, which I think is a better word than capitalism. If innovism actually lost our immortal souls, I would be a socialist. I'd be up here saying, you know, you know you're wrong. Socialism is great. Let's go for it. If I actually thought that socialism would do a, do a better job for the soul, and I think the evidence there is overwhelmingly that it doesn't. But in fact, the 70 years of communism in the Soviet Union wrecked the ethics of ordinary Russians. And it's not just the high-level stuff, the containerization, although when, when, when McLean invented containerization, he didn't think it would end up with 10,000 uh, containers on a ship. He, he just wanted to do a few of them. So he started small, but so did Ray Kroc start small. Um, so did Bill Gates. Not so small, actually. Uh, but it's also the ordinary people having a go. The ordinary woman who decides to open a hairdressing salon in the neighborhood and puts her heart and soul into it. The ordinary guy who goes to the oil fields, moves to the oil fields of North Dakota, in its old, in its oil boom. Where did this confidence come from? This confidence in having a go. Humans have always been innovative to some degree. But it's very striking how much more innovative they become in countries like England or France or the United States or Italy or Japan after 1800. How did this happen? Well, it came from what uh, Adam Smith calls the obvious and simple plan, the liberal plan of equality, liberty, and justice, by which he meant equality of social standing, the kind of respect that all Americans accord to each other or should. Liberty to open the hairdressing salon or invent the internet and equal justice before the law. It's an egalitarian proposition, this liberalism. And here I want to quarrel with some of you in the audience who might be 
traditional conservatives who don't believe in equality. I don't believe in what I call French-style equality, Rousseau's equality after the event, the cutting down of tall poppies. But I do believe in equality in these senses that Adam Smith um, um, spoke of. Equal rights to open to equal rights to venture, express it better. So at age 26 and certainly by 76, you're, you're, you're supposed, to, supposed to know this kind of thing. You're supposed to know that socialism hasn't historically worked, that there are sound reasons to think uh, that it, it doesn't work, even though it works in small societies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Among friends, you're dividing up a, a pizza would be obnoxious if your so-called friend said, well, you know, I paid for the pizza. I should get most of the slices. That's friendship destroying. You wouldn't want to do that. So among friends, as Erasmus said, all things are held in common. In his great book of Latin tags, that was always the first one. But that's among friends. It's not among Strangers in the great society. I bought a couple of years ago a little accordion, and I'm trying very slowly to learn it because I won't practice. This is a bit of a problem. You've heard the old joke, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice. How do you get to the Catskills? Stop practicing. So... They, they ought to know that in the great society you can't have from each according to his ability to each according to her need. St. Paul said, St. Paul said, he who does not work should not eat. He was complaining by correspondence that his former friends who thought that the Messiah was about to come again decided, well, why work if the Messiah is going to come come tomorrow? And he said, no, no. Um, the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the great ma- motto of the monks from the fourth century on was laborare est orare, to, to work is to pray. Now, is it ethical to go on with such misapprehensions? No, of course not. It's the ethical responsibility of an adult to know what's going on. We should know it when we when we vote or when we're in business or in our marriages or whatever. So, so what in brief are the the ethics I approve of? Well, as explained in these books, um, that I think the best way to approach ethical questions is through so-called virtue ethics, which is the oldest impulse in about ethical thought. It's common east and west and south. You can find pieces of it in Confucianism or um, Hinduism or Buddhism. Um, in Islam, in the Abrahamic uh, religions, 
And it is. <laughs> There's an old joke, advice about how to write well. How, how to write well. Be good, then write naturally. Be good and then write naturally. And I'm suggesting that the named virtues, prudence, justice, courage, to temperance, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, with their libraries of cultural products behind each of them, should be, and models for behavior, Florence Nightingale, uh, Odin, Odysseus, etc. These should be our guides, not the abstract rules that became unsurprisingly popular in the 18th century. Abstract rules like contractitarianism a la Hobbes and Locke, or Kant, not Kant, but Kant, um, justice elevated to the one ethical principle, or um, Jeremy Bentham with prudence elevated to the one. No, no. As Adam Smith said, when I do this in Russia, I always do it the other way. <laughs> As Adam Smith said in his greatest book, which you must read, called The Theory of Moral Sentiments in its last in, 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 in edition, the great guide to behavior should be the virtues arranged together. But if all you have in your heart is justice, you lack love. If all you have in your heart is love, you'll lack, you'll lack justice. And so I end with a summary of how these rules turn out, which is a combination of our conservative heritage and the liberal Abrahamic egalitarian promise of equal souls. Hillel of Babylon, late in the first century BCE, said, do not do unto others what you would not have them do to you. This negative form is like the libertarians, in fact it is, the libertarians, non-aggression axiom. It's masculine, so to speak. Leave me alone. Don't tread on me. I have autonomy. Whereas another Jewish sage early in the first century BCE, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth said, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. This positive way of saying it is, so to speak, um, feminine, although I don't want to make some essentialist argument here, me least of all. Be a good Samaritan. Don't cross by on the other side. Be nice. And I think we need both.
I think in a socialist society, we will not have both. Reminds me of still another old joke. Someone wrote on the wall, scribbled on the wall, to do is to be Descartes. The next person wrote, to be is to do Kierkegaard. The third person wrote, dooby dooby doo, Sinatra. <laughs> and that's about right. To do and to be. To be the kind of person who does good. You need to live in a free and responsible society such as I think everyone here advocates. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, We have time for some questions. We have folks uh, who are going to go around the room with mics. Please uh, state your name and your institutional affiliation before you ask your question and try to keep the questions brief. Uh, Yes, ma'am. Yes. Simone Gao from Newtown Dynasty Television. I have three questions. First, what do you think? One by one. Right. (laughs) Thank you so much. My first question, what do you think is the deepest flaw of socialism and what's the cause of it? What's the cause of that flaw? Well, the, the, the deepest flaw is the notion that an economy can be run from the top down. This is a point that Hayek made and uh, lots of other people. But and it, and it, it <laughs> when what was her name? Martha, I think her person is Martha Hamburg, um, retired as the head of the Federal Drug Administration. She was interviewed on NPR, and the reporter said, with apparent uh, delight, that Hamburg had been in charge of 20% of the American economy. You think, what, what, 20%, one person? Yep, food and drugs. And it, it, it's, it's a persistent error that the economy is easy. That's another of the socialist axioms, that it's easy to do. We don't need discovery. We don't need to learn if the neighborhood needs another hairdressing salon. What's the second question? Um, this is a follow-up for the first question. Why is this theory wrong, like top-down economy, wrong from the top? Why is this wrong? Logically. It's possible that there's a world, perhaps an alternate universe, in which top-down management of the economy is fine. And indeed, as I said, in a family, that's how it's managed, top-down. The the Confucian analogy of the emperor with the mandate of heaven being the father of the nation, and which is a me- metaphor that co- occurs everywhere, is, um, is, is the source of the problem. People believe that they can take the model of the family and apply it to the whole society. And 
as I said, from an ethical point of view, from the point of view of a 16-year-old who doesn't know anything, but is pretty sure she does, um, sure she knows everything, it sounds fine. But it's not. And, now, and indeed, anyone with any experience of life knows that a family can't really be governed very well. Think of your offspring, your, your, your children. You, uh, think of mine who haven't spoken to me for 22 years. So you were just saying uh, it's proven wrong. It's not. No. Yeah, yeah. It's proven wrong because there's no, there's no logical proof. This is an empirical fact. That's why it comes with maturity if it does. In the case of Bernie Sanders, it didn't, but that's okay. It, it comes with maturity. Um, or reading. If you open your mind, you think, gee whiz, things didn't work out very well in the Soviet Union. Yeah, but even that in, in ultimately is empirical. It, and indeed, that's how the, the socialists in the socialist calculation debate of the 1920s and 30s took it. They took it as a challenge to get more computers, to get smarter and smarter people at the center. And then we could, uh, everything would be fine. I have a friend, a, a colleague of mine in Iowa, who was asked to go to a, a, one of the Soviet republics to advise them on transport of agricultural goods. And, uh, you know, he's from Iowa. They figured he could tell them about that. So he did. He said, look, we have trucks and, and grain elevators and ships and barges and so forth. And then someone in the audience said, but who's the commissar? Who's in charge? And Gary said, oh, well, uh, no one's in charge. And they stopped believing him. They thought he was hiding a state secret. What's the third one? Then we'll go on. Oh. Oh, okay. He had his hand up early, this guy did. I go for eager beavers. I'm Pat Mackler, and I work for Senator Ron Johnson. You use the term innovism. Yeah. And I wonder this. To what extent is the charm of socialism a, a feeling by people that, that somehow they could be protected from yeah. somebody else who's going to disrupt them with well, some creative right. idea? That's, that's absolutely true. And it's, um, it's evident in the, it was evident yesterday. Um, and, uh, in the appeal of, uh, of the, of the, of, this is something that Bernie Sanders and Trump, of course, agree on, mm, protectionism. Just, and, and I understand that the disturbances of new industries, of what was terrifyingly called creative destruction, it's not Schumpeter's phrase, but he borrowed it from someone else, um, comes from progress, not from neoliberalism or sneaky Chinese who are trying to sell us hammers inexpensively or something like that, or more Mexicans and auto parts. It's very irritating that they do that. It, 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 it doesn't come from those. It comes from progress. Now, hear this. I speak of the socialist calculation debate that an all-wise central planner would order. An all-wise central planner 
would allow the Chinese and now the Vietnamese before the, the, the Japanese, before that the Germans, to specialize in low-wage industries and export to us. A central planner would under ideal socialism. So it's progress that they're objecting to, not neoliberalism. I mean, this is very clear in Hungary, where, you know, Hungarian agriculture is not a good prospect for the future of Hungary. So despite enormous subsidies from the common market, it's not doing very well. So you get support for fascism, which is just another form of socialism. It's very depressing. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I'll stand so you can see me. Um, my name is Claire Gunner. I'm 22, which places me between 16 and 26. There's hope. <laughs> so please do influence me. My question is, do you think that the free market and socialism, and when I say socialism, I mean socialist ideas, such as um, universal health care and free education, Sorry. do you think they're mutually exclusive? No, I don't think so. As, as Adam Smith said, I think that education, at least elementary education, should be subsidized by taxes on you and me. But of course... Paying for it isn't the same thing as providing it. And as you know, there is just a deep confusion about this. People say, oh, well, but we've got to have elementary education. All right. And I'm willing to be taxed to provide it because I don't think poor people will do enough if if it's not free. But I want it to be free. I want it to be free. Um, the, uh, the, the, the same thing holds in a more radical way for roads, Whenever you speak to a convinced statist, which is a more comprehensive term, but certainly covers socialism, you say, well, look, we ought to have a smaller government. They say, well, what? Don't you want roads? And they imagine a world in which suddenly all the roads uh, disappear. And I say, yeah, I want roads, but I want them to be provided privately as they were in the United States and Britain in the 18th and early 19th century. Then, in a way that would make a very interesting dissertation in history, they became defined as public goods. I think it's a piece of municipal socialism. But in any case, now it's trivial for roads to be owned privately. You, you, You put a transponder in your vehicle, and you can pay for the roads the way you pay for your gas bill. Uh... But it's very hard to to get people to change. In Ireland, (laughs) there's a proposal, which sounds very reasonable, even in such a wet place, to meter water. Okay? Meter water. This has become an immense political issue in Ireland. Because the Irish say, to hell with that. I don't want my water metered. I want to run it 24 hours a day as long as I want. Go away. Well, you know, we, we, it's the ideological battle on points like this that we need to win. And, and one, here's the, here's the cheerful news. We did win once. Henry David Thoreau, by the way, there's a sensationally good biography. I can't even remember her name from the University of Chicago Press called Henry David Thoreau. Read it. 
skip the first chapter on the geology of Walden Pond. Uh, but, but, but he said, I, I fervently support the proposition that that government is best that governs least. He was not a socialist. Yes, dear. Hi, I'm Diane Katz with Heritage. I, I thought it was very interesting what you had to say about the um, the nuclear family yeah, and, and yeah. its impact. I also wonder, though, do we come – is altruism innate? Is, do we have any – you know, do we come with some um, altruism that over-experience becomes tempered? Well, we do. We Humans among the great apes, by actual careful experiment – Humans are unusually cooperative. There have been many, many experiments showing this between chimpanzees, even 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 bonobo chimpanzees, who are the nicest of the two, and gorillas. We cooperate all the time. I think it's entwined with with, with language. But what we need to convince people of is that specialization and, and uh, ownership of property and its outcome results in massive cooperation. I said I, I, I di- didn't quite finish my, my tale about buying my accordion, my little accordion trying to learn it. I, 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 I forgot to give you the punchline, which is that what? I, I, I bought this accordion from Czechoslovakia. It's a beautiful instrument. I just wish I could play it. Um, what, I'm supposed to make my own accordion? In fact, the logical reduction of protectionism of any sort is, all right, let's protect Illinois, erect tariff bearers. All right, Chicago. All right, Printer's Row. All right, my own house. And then I'll have plenty of jobs. It's pazzo. So, yes, cooperation. Here, here's an, another version of that point. You always hear enterprises called, um, well, nonprofit enterprises are always identified as being nonprofit. As though there was something especially virtuous, a presumption of virtue, unless they're called the Heritage Foundation, uh, um, uh, if in nonprofit institutions. But come on, this system of markets is the most altruistic ever designed. People do work for each other incessantly. I get very annoyed what's become the current cant about admiring people for their military service. And they do it on MSNBC as much as on Fox News. Uh, Thank you for your service. What are you talking about? Someone who makes toothbrushes is doing you a service. Stop it. <laughs> Sorry, I get all excited about this. Is there a question over here? Yeah, we, we don't want to John. Yeah. ignore the left. <laughs> yes, uh, John Burlaw, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. Um, you had you talked here about innovation and 
And in, in your writings, you say what changed in, in like really in the 19th century and early 20th century with innovation was as much as the innovations and, and one phenomenon drove each other is the way society viewed the innovator and the inventor right. instead of somebody as, as instead of as crackpots, all of a sudden they were visionaries, exactly. they were the benefactors of society. What was, I have my own thoughts about this, but what, what do you think was responsible for this? And is there hope in that, you know, you could still get a progressive admiring Steve Jobs you know, they want to redistribute his, his wealth, but they still yeah. admire the invention, the technology, the innovator. Yeah, well, the the the, um, the sort of characteristic figure of this is, is Benjamin Franklin, who held only one patent in his life, though he invented a whole bunch of things. And uh, at age 43, having become the most successful uh, printer in the colonies, he sold his business and became a... a public inventor and scientist and so on. Ben wanted to be a gentleman very much in the 18th century sense. So he was no, you know, he was, he was, he wanted to climb the existing hierarchy. But um, that's right. It's the change in attitude towards Benjamin Franklin's that matters. It's not, I see people who have only read the titles of my books, actually the title of the first of the, of the trilogy think that I mean um, uh, uh, that there was a change in that business people became more virtuous in the 18th century, say. It's the same way they feel if they haven't read any of my books on, on the rhetoric of economics. They think I'm advocating more fancy language in economics. In I, I'm saying that there is a change in social attitudes. Now, why, you ask? You evidently haven't read the third book of the, the trilogy because that's where I answer it. Um, and you must. You must run down and get it. Thank you, dear. Um, and it says the causes were accidents in Europe. Nothing deep about Europe. My argument is not, as so, so many of my conservative friends want to make it, a story of the deep superiority of people. Um, I call them melanin-challenged people. Um, uh, it's not about the deep innovativeness of Europe, which wasn't. The most innovative society in the world in 1492 was China. It had the best ships, it had the best our agriculture, the best science, the best mathematics, the best whatever you want to talk about, the best painting, China. Um, no, it was the accidents of a whole bunch of accidents, not just one. The Protestant Re Reformation, the, 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 the Dutch revolt against Spain, both of them reasonably successful. The English um, um, uh, uh, Civil War of the 1640s and its follow-on in the 1650s. The uh, the great, um, the glorious uh, revolution, uh, the American Revolution, the failed Dutch Revolution, and the French Revolution. All of these accidentally made ordinary people bold. Take Protestantism. What was important in Protestantism is not my Protestantism, which is Anglican, or or the 
Lutherans, the so-called magisterial reformation, which kept a hierarchy in the church. My priest is chosen by the bishop. But congregationalism, whereas its name implies the congregation chooses the minister, or still more radically coming out of the 1640s in England, these, the, the Society of Friends, the, the Quakers, in which no one is the minister and women are allowed to speak in the, in the meeting. And one after another of these, the, um, the Dutch, the, the northern Dutch, so to speak, defeat the military hegemon of the 16th and early 17th century, Spain, Habsburgs. And uh, this gives them the idea that they can have a go. And this having a go is crucial. Who's next? This gentleman and then this young lady in the back. Thank you. Uh, I'm Dave Rubin with some retired and I'd like to I am get... too, thank God. It's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, boy, I'm telling you, all of you ought to work on getting retired. It's worth waiting for. But uh, I'd like to get to your definition of socialism. Yeah. Because as I understand it, in capitalism, everything is owned by somebody. Yeah. And the extreme of capitalism is feudalism, where everything's owned by one person, the yeah. emperor, the czar, whatever. And in capitalism... If you own a house, you step off your property, you're on somebody else's property yeah, who can then charge you for to use it or, or trespass. Right. And as soon as you start having public uh, highways, roads and stuff like that, then you're socialist. By, yeah. by the def- so basically the situation degree. we live in right now is socialism. I agree with you. Where you have a mixture of public and private property. I agree. And when everything becomes uh, public property or community property, that's communism. Well, and, or yeah, something like it. Yeah. Actually, the, in, in socialist theory, communism is the last stage. Well, yeah, social, it's when everything disappears. Yeah, communism state is every, disappears. when everything is publicly owned. Yeah. Owned by the commune or the, and in state, uh, communism, everything's owned by the state. Yeah. And if the state is controlled by one person. Yeah. Then it's not really communism, it's feudalism. Yeah, it because is. one person owns everything. So the Soviet Union was not really communist, it was feudal. Yeah, I and agree, I agree. Try to keep it to a question. Yes, and uh, my question... Well, I, I don't actually agree with that analysis, although it has, that, well, that, has was, elements with which I agree. That was what I was going to Large ask. Large parts of it are wrong. Oh, well... I think, by the way, what you're getting back about the accidents in Europe was basically the end of feudalism, yeah. where uh, it wasn't all con- owned by one person. That's wrong. That's okay, that's what I want to ask. What is, what is your definition? Here's, here's the key point. Correct me. One of the many reasons I don't like the word capitalism is that people think it's a stage of history. That's, you know, we're all Marxists now. Um, and that's wrong. Ownership, property... Markets are pervasive in human society and always have been. One of the earliest archaeological sites um, is the Blombos Cave in South Africa. And at the time, the Blombos Cave area where these people lived was 100 miles from the seashore. And yet they found at 70,000 BCE, they found a necklace made of seashells. Now, they didn't get it by walking 100 miles and then walking 100 miles back. They must have been trading with, and it's dangerous in, in such circumstances to walk over to an, another 
hunter-gatherers area, you're liable to get in trouble. No, no. They're, that's one of the earliest, but there are many, 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 many others. Evidence of trade. Um, so it's not true that exchange or property is new. Property is, in fact, characteristic of some species of butterflies who will take up a position in a, in a, in a, a sunny area of a forest and defend it uh, against other b- 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 butterflies. Property is commonplace in the animal world and even in the vegetable world. So this whole idea that there's something new about so-called capitalism is wrong. It's deeply mistaken. What is new is innovism. What's new in world-making is the incredible amount of innovation. That's new. And that's what we need not need not to exp- that's what we need to explain, not this matter of uh, of the stages of history, which is wrong, mistaken. We have time for one more question. This young lady in the back. Hi there. Thank you for your time. Uh, my name is Cecilia, and I'm at, with the Institute for Humane Studies. And um, I have a question. HS, yay. Um, so the economist Tyler Cowen and the political philosopher Jason Brennan have recently written about how. Um, extremely capitalistic places like California tend to overestimate our virtue signal um, even when they benefit a lot from the market. Mm-hmm. Um, so they tend to vote towards more social policies. Sure or, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and say like how, um, what effect that has like very capitalistic well-doing economies do and I guess overestimate. Well, you know, all we can do, we, we can't take them out and shoot them. I wouldn't want to. We can't send them to Chinese government re-education camps as the Chinese government is doing on a massive scale as we speak with the uh, 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 Uyghurs. Um, So we can't do that. But all we can do is preach to them. And actually, probably better than academics like me preaching to them is popular culture. There's a great movie called Joy about Joy Mangano, the inventor of the self-squeezing mop. And it's a terrifically, basically pro-innovism tale. It's really about an innovation. There's a, about the same time, there was a, a very good movie called The Founder about Ray Kroc, who had failed in business over and over and over again and then figured out that you could take the McDonald's brothers model of assembly line production of hamburgers. I mean, I, w- I was watching a hamburger guy this morning. I had to get breakfast at, uh, at, at the train station. Um, and he, uh, he was, it, it was wonderful to watch him. But, of course, he couldn't do the volume that an assembly line can. And that was their discovery, which he... Okay, look. More rock music with free market themes. I think country music, I'm not much of a country music fan. I like it, but I I don't know much about it. I think country music is a really good place to look for pro-innovism, pro-market themes. Now, there's a lot of kind of whining. You know what happens when a, when a, when a, uh, in a country music, you, when when you run a country music tune backwards, the guy gets back his girl, <laughs> his gun, and his pickup. <laughs> but
But it's popular culture. That's where the rubber meets the road, to use a country music expression. That's where it is. We, um, the, and, and it always has been. Ideologies are formed in the high and low culture. They're not formed. You know, look, Hollywood produces endless anti or pro-socialist movies. Actually, here's what's so absurd about it. Anti-corporatist movies produced by massive corporations with corporate officers hanging from the ceilings. It's ridiculous. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. If, if you'd like a copy of the outline, I'll leave it here. And just one final reminder, the next event in the series is November 15th. George Gilder speaking on capitalism as an information learning system. Thanks again.